We're in a new series called Together about the kind of church that we want to be and in many ways the kind of church that we believe by God's grace we already are but it's our vision and values really and last week Steve introduced the series um, by, by introducing us to the church at Antioch which is where we're going to be looking for most of this uh, next couple of months because it's been something of a model church for us for many years and Steve introduced us to a number of the reasons why. It's a church with a great passion for an example of community and discipleship, mission, grace, mercy, generosity, prayer, word, spirit, loads of themes which we're going to draw out of this church over the course of the next few weeks to see the kind of church that we want to be. And today we're going to zoom in on the theme of community. We wanted that to be the first one we looked at and we're going to look at community and so I wonder if you could grab your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 15. That would be great, Acts 15. We, we were last week in Acts 11 which is where most of the material comes from but we do also hear about the Antioch church in Acts 15 and so we're going to look at that theme of community from there. And community, I, I don't know if this is true for you, but in my adult lifetime, the word community has become a lot more fashionable or popular or whatever you'd call it. So I turned 18 in the year that New Labour came to power. And very quickly, community as a, as a concept was suddenly everywhere. I don't remember, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't remember it being such a big thing in the 1980s. Um, but, but in the late 90s, suddenly the sort of idea of community was everywhere and everything was a community, school, community, hospital, community centre, community policing, community, everything. Community leaders came and, and all, of these th all of these terms came out and people started using the word community to, as a prefix to all kinds of things that I don't think the word was used to mean before. I did one of those... Um, if you come across Google Ngram, which is where you type a word or a concept into Google and you can track how often a word is used over 200 years in books. And what I found was, as I expected, I guess, that the word community goes, sh goes shooting up over the course of the last two centuries. And actually, interestingly, that words like town and parish, which pre previously people would have used to describe where they live, have gone down dramatically. So it's almost like the word community has functioned as a replacement for the idea of place. Sometimes that's all it means. So people might say in our community, what they basically mean is in our town or in our borough or our parish or whatever it might be. And today, if you use a company's website or you buy something from them, you will find yourself part of their online community. That's what they'll say. Welcome to the online community. And think, what's that? But it basically means you're one of our customers. You, you sit at a screen and press a button and maybe engage with us. You're part of the, I don't know, the Facebook community or something. And you think, oh, hang on, is, is that what the word means? Is that, is that all it is? A customer? A person who clicks something sitting on a screen and doesn't do anything more than that? If you go and go into Starbucks and buy a coffee, they'll say, it's, you're now part of the Starbucks community. And there's like a community notice board behind anything. Wow, that, that word community has become, I think, very diluted in its meaning in the sense that the more it's got used, the weaker its meaning has become. But I think behind all of that overuse, which I think is what it is, behind all the buzzword of community, there is a genuine desire in all of us for the reality. That I think what people, in some ways, the fact we use the word so often may reflect a desire to actually have community, even if we don't believe it's quite the same as buying a coffee or going on a website or living in an area. And because what we want is the reality. We want a corporate sense of collectiveness and togetherness that turns an I into a we. That's what community can be. And, and that's what our hearts are longing for. It's a sense of coming together. 
And one of my favorite books that I've ever read, actually, is a book on moral psychology uh, by uh, an American, he's a secular Jewish guy, not a, not a Christian believer, but it's a very, very interesting book on the way that human beings make moral choices and the psychology behind it. And uh, he talks about something that he calls the hive switch. And basically what, what he means is, Human beings, most of the time, are like selfish chimpanzees. We live as individuals who just want what we want, or maybe enough for our kids. But there are a few things that happen to us in life that turn us from chimpanzees into bees. And he calls that moment the hive switch, where you suddenly get, there's like a switch that gets flipped, and you stop functioning like a selfish mammal, and you start seeing yourself as part of a bigger purpose, like bees in the hive going, I don't really care what I'm about, I want to do what we're about. And he uses a number of examples in the book and says, yeah, there are various things in human culture that flip the hive switch, that turn us from chimpanzees into bees, that things like uh, team sport or national tragedy. Remember when Princess Diana died and we may have something of the same when the queen dies and we, those sorts of things which just bring people together. Dance is one of those things, when people dance together but to music. Corporate worship, he says, is a huge one. That when people experience, as we just have, corporate worship together, it makes us feel to our bones like we are part of something bigger than ourselves and not just isolated individuals. And actually that longing to be part of, to be like bees rather than chimpanzees, that goes back to, right back to the garden. It goes right back to God saying of human beings, it's not good for us to live alone. It's not good for us to be isolated miles away from anybody. There's a longing within all of us for what the New Testament calls this beautiful word koinonia. It means commonness or common life together, fellowship, participation, sharing, togetherness. And that goes pretty deep in human beings. And the question is not, is it a good thing? Because I think we all want it. The question is, how do you get it? How do you find togetherness, community? Is it by living the 21st century dream of earning and owning a big home and lots of land and space between you and other people and consuming stuff there and having lots of conveniences and then retiring? Or is it maybe by doing something else? And so we're going to read Acts chapter 15 and read a number of sections actually beginning at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers and sisters, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Then skip down to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now skip down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men from among the brothers and sisters, with the following letter. The brothers and sisters, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers and sisters who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, 
having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they'd read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers and sisters with many words. And after they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who'd sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is the word of God. At the start of Acts 15, the church is facing a challenging new question in its history, in our history. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And that has the potential to be disastrously divisive, separating Jews from Gentiles permanently. Are Gentiles always going to be second-class citizens to the Jewish people? Yet by the end of Acts 15, where we finish today, the church in Antioch is gathered, united, strengthened, encouraged, and rejoicing, and division has been avoided, and the community has been brought closer together. Now, how has that happened? Very divisive question at the start, wonderful togetherness at the end in community. Why? How has that happened? And what's happened is that the community, as the, the leaders and the people have deliberated and prayed, they have come to see that the community is united by at least five things, each of which builds on the previous one. And those five things together give them a sense of togetherness, a sense of community, of common life, partnership, fellowship together, uh, that, that is based on shared salvation, shared convictions, shared practices, shared gatherings, and shared relationships. And I want to walk through them and show you what I mean by that. But it starts with a shared salvation. That's, what, that's the foundation for Christian community, is that you, we've been saved, and so have you, and so have you, and so have they. And as a result, we are all united under one Father. We've all received one Spirit. We've all come to the Father through one Son. And that salvation has made us one. It's brought us into community. So look at Peter's logic in verses 8 and 9. Peter's trying to say, this is why we can't split over this. This is why we can't have Gentiles having this requirement and them having to become like Jews. No, no, no. God, he says, who knows the heart, bore witness to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. So the argument that's coming in Antioch is, hang on, the Gentiles, if they want to be in, they need to get circumcised like the Jews do. And Peter says, no, God doesn't seem to see it that way because God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 before they'd been circumcised. So it can't be a requirement to be welcomed into God's people. So what we can't do is us put up a barrier that God hasn't put up to people being able to join. And that's basically a one sentence summary of Acts that God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he did to us, that is the Jews. That's the story of the book of Acts. Luke, if, I think if Luke had to summarize what he's doing in this book, that's one way he could do it. Say, so, yeah, basically my point in telling this huge story of the church is that God has given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he did to the Jews. And when the Jews believed, there was Pentecost. 
Then when the Gentiles believed, the same spirit fell and produced the same results of speaking in languages, prophesying, and so on. And that shared experience of the Holy Spirit is the foundation of Christian community for Peter. It proves that God made no distinction between us and them. Now, we do that all the time in the world, don't we? We have us and them thinking. People often talk like that. Oh, well, it's a little bit us and them. Or it's a little bit insiders and outsiders. It's a little bit we and other. You know, we do things that other people do things that way. Happens all the time. You, you make another group, the, the out group, and you're the in group, and you separate the two, and you have a them, which gives strength and meaning to the us. And the boundaries go up, and it becomes more and more distinct. And God, Peter is saying, has torn that down because he's given the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. In other words, God has brought down the dividing line between human beings and created a community, not a group of separate identities, all of which have their own preferences. Now, it goes without saying, sadly, that ever since Peter said that, Christians have done our best at times to re-erect those boundaries through status or race or sex or politics or age, language, education. We've found lots of different ways of dividing in the history of the church. But those divisions defy the God who gives his spirit to all. They, are, they push against the grain of the way God has given his spirit in the world to all believers. And then Peter adds this. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, verse 11. He's making a similar point, but actually this time saying it's not just the shared experience of the Spirit, it's the shared salvation we have through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That is, there's a sort of a Trinitarian argument being made here. We've all come to one God, we've all received the same Spirit, and we've all received the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the Gentiles have received grace just like we have. And we think we are going to be saved by God's grace just as they are. So he's trying to show them that they've got this, a shared salvation that makes them one, whether they're Jew or Gentile. The same grace that saves a Jew saves a Gentile. This, we don't merit it, Peter's saying, any more than they do. Right? If, if we did, it wouldn't be called grace, would it? It must be undeserved. That's the whole point of grace. And that's what makes grace such a vital part of Christian belief. Because it doesn't just reconcile us to God, it actually reconciles us to each other and creates community where there was none, because we all know none of us deserve it. So none of us can say, oh, I'm not having him in, him in here. I don't know what she's doing here. See, no, I don't know what I'm doing here. That's the whole point of grace. And that's what brings us into community. This week, I'm heading to the Vatican to see the Pope. It's kind of a funny story. I won't go into it all. Um, but the Pope and I disagree on a bunch of things. And in fact, the other day I was driving through Sydenham and I saw that school, some of you drive past it, I'm sure, that, uh, that says, to Jesus through Mary on their banner. And I shouted in the car, I was like, ah! You know, like, I, I tend to do that. I was like quite an external person. And I was like, I can't, steam coming out of my ears, to Jesus through Mary, what is this nonsense? Like, that's not at all my or our theology here. I know, I know you know that. But at the same time, I am united with the Pope with the, the fact that we both have, share the same salvation. Actually, I believe that he, the same grace of God that's going to save me, is going to save him. I believe that there's the same spirit that has transformed me is transforming him. I believe he will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as I will. And that shared salvation, even when there is fierce disagreement, and often in the church there is and has been, that shared salvation is the foundation for Christian community. So that's where it starts, and that's why I spent a bit longer on it, because that first one is critical to the other four. But community, actually true community, runs deeper than that. And it's good to recognize the shared salvation 
that we all have through the shared experience of the Father's adoption and the Lord Jesus Christ's grace and the Spirit's work. That's good to recognize and start there, but my community with the Pope is limited, right? It, we have a shared salvation, but actually I am limited in the extent to which I am part of community with him because we do disagree on some important things. And the church in Antioch wasn't just united by a shared salvation, they also effectively formed shared convictions. They came to some convictions together that enabled them to even write this letter and lay a foundation for church unity ever since. They said in verse 25, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. In other words, we've come to agreement when, on, on how to implement this in the church, of how the church should live and function in light of our shared salvation. Because the question of whether Gentiles could be circumcised, should be circumcised would, split, would have split the church if they hadn't sorted it out. So they couldn't agree to disagree on it. You can't have some people go, oh, well, we, if you want to be a Gentile here, you need to get circumcised. But over there, it's fine. They couldn't do that. They had to agree, no, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. Praise God. And so they had an extended debate. And they, that's what the Jerusalem Council is. That's the story we've just read. And they came to one accord together. They came to a shared conviction. And then they communicated it to the churches, which brought great joy and encouragement to those churches. Now, community is strengthened by shared theological conviction. Right? One of the reasons that community today is quite a squishy, bland term, in my view. Maybe that's not how you see it, but I, I think it's a, it's a pretty bland term. It just means, oh, in this community or I'm part of the online community. You think that term has become bland because it's not based on shared beliefs. I'm not genuinely in community in a meaningful sense with the people behind me in the queue in the coffee shop. I don't know anything about them. I don't even know their name until someone shouts it out across the cafe. But I don't know anything about them. I don't know whether we agree the same things. I don't know whether what I think is wrong with the world is like the absolute opposite of what they think. I just don't know. But they might, people haven't reached one accord in that sort of context. And what these people did is they said, no, it's not just that we've all been saved by the same grace. It's also that we've come to shared convictions about the nature of Christian truth. And that might sound restrictive, and to some today it does. Some people worry that if you have to have shared convictions to be in community, that somehow that means you're going to be exclusive. And of course, you are going to be exclusive in certain ways, but then every community is. And in fact, you've got to exclude certain things, otherwise you can't have a community. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, uh, thanks to a very generous member of this church, actually, me and my son were able to go and watch Liverpool versus Crystal Palace at the Palace. The problem is me and my son are Liverpool fans, and the tickets we've been given were to sit in amongst Palace fans. We were very, very grateful. We were like, of course, we desperately want to go. But you're then in an awkward position, because what do you do if Liverpool score? In an, you're surrounded by tens of thousands of Palace fans who are not very chuffed about it, and you're very excited about it. And I have a, an exuberant 13-year-old boy who really wants to express his joy. And so we have a lot of coaching beforehand. Listen, we are sitting in their community, Right? We're sitting amongst their, they have a shared conviction, I could have said, that the Crystal Palace are better than Liverpool and that that's who they want to win. We are not part of that community, and so we are going to respect them by not going, Aah! whenever Liverpool score. And again, by the grace of God, that's what happened. What happened in, in a genuine community, you have clear convictions. We want the Palace to win, or we want Liverpool to win. But you can't say, oh, around here, we, we, that's exclusive. No, everybody's welcome. Doesn't matter what team you support, we'll all have it all. You think, 
That's just mushy. A genuine community will be united around some shared convictions. And in the church, of course, it's far stronger convictions than simply, I prefer this team to that one. It's convictions like we believe in one God, one church, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. That unites us, those convictions, and not only the salvation that we share. And in Antioch, those shared convictions, the full inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God in fulfillment of scripture, immediately issued forth in shared practices. So it's not just that they had beliefs, but they also worked out what they were going to do about it. Because faith without works is dead and convictions without practice is dead. They said, verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what's sacrificed to idols and blood and what's been strangled and sexual immorality. So Jews, they're saying, don't make life difficult for Gentiles by insisting on circumcision. Gentiles don't make life difficult for Jews by insisting on eating idol food or blood or food that hasn't been killed properly. Both of you need to make sacrifices for the other because you're part of one community now. Now, in our generation, we might need other shared practices and sacrifices to flourish in community together. In the last few months, I've had conversations like that within the church, in leadership settings. about So how are we going to make sacrifices and make compromises together to preserve our community in light of what might otherwise be divisive issues? There might be masks, or there might be food, or music, or clothing, or the way we talk about Russia, or Ukraine, or the Queen, or all sorts of things. But actually, at those points, we're wanting to appeal to our common salvation and say, yeah, but we have common convictions and we want the convictions to be expressed in common practices that enable us to remain together. Because genuine community happens when we prefer the health of the whole to the preferences of the individual. Now, in theory, I share salvation, convictions and practices with millions of people worldwide. In that sense, I am united with them. But to be in genuine community requires something else, which requires shared gatherings, like physically being together. I can be in unity with someone in Latin America, but for me to be in community with them, I think requires actually being able to be together with them. And that's what we see in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now the world loves removing the need for physical presence, right? Excarnation, you could call it, as opposed to incarnation. We want to take the meat out. We want to take bodies out if we can. So the phone, TV, internet, anti-social media, the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg's new, don't even need to be there. You'll just feel like you are through virtual reality. The world's always doing that, saying let's let's take meat and people and bodies out of it. And God loves incarnation. God loves putting himself into the situation physically, literally gathering with us in person by coming in the flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read about the New Testament church, you can't miss it. They are constantly gathering together physically, meeting and they're always eating. They're always drinking, always sharing with one another and giving money to each other and hugging and kissing. Like loads of the New Testament letters sign off with, make sure you kiss one another. You think that's, that's not, you know, physical expressions of affection and family are very important in biblical Christianity. And so my invitation to you is, yeah, come in person, which obviously many of us watching this are, but come in person and hang around afterwards. Be physically there. Don't just, don't scuttle. I know sometimes you have to leave, but don't scuttle off as quick as you can where possible. Hang around. Invite people home. Eat. Drink. 
Meet in groups midweek. Make physical contact with each other as, as far as is respectful and appropriate and so on. So we have physical being together. We've got shared gatherings. And then finally, from a place of shared salvation, shared convictions and shared practices, and then shared gatherings, we establish shared relationships. We relate to each other not just as fellow citizens or as colleagues, but as family members. And this is, what the, this is one of the most striking features of the New Testament church, and it's one of the things that seems most alien to many of us in the 21st century West. But this is what they say. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are. Verse 36, that is an, it's a very tiny little statement. It's very subtle. You could miss it. But notice what's assumed in that text. Paul and Barnabas don't think the gospel's been preached there. Job done. The task, tick. It's off my to-do list, you know. Preach gospel in Antioch. Preach gospel in Lystra, Iconium Derby. Tick, tick, tick. On to the next thing. That's not how they think about the world. It's not how they think about the church. They think, no, I have a commitment to the people. So let's go back and visit all those brothers and sisters and see how they are. And it's shared relationships, brothers and sisters together, family, people who care how one another are doing, shared relationships that make it feel like a community. We might gather with people who share our beliefs, but it only feels like a community when we share our homes, when we share our loves, when we share our affection and our friendships and our relationships, because we need to know and to be known. And the great thing, of course, about relationships is that anyone can start one. You don't have to wait for the other person to initiate to you. The more friendships you initiate, probably, the more you will have. My father-in-law often tells this story. He says, you've got a man who meets a stranger coming towards him. And the stranger says, what are people like in that town you've just come from? And the guy says, well, how did you find them in the last town you were from? And he says, oh, I, uh, I, I kind of found them really pleasant. They were welcoming. They were loving and kind. And the guy says, yeah, that's probably what you'll find them like in that town too. And then he keeps going and another guy comes up and he says, what are people like in that town you've just been in? And he says, what were they like in the last town? And this, ex this other guy says, they were really mean and exclusive and they kicked me out all the time. I didn't, really, they didn't, I didn't make any friends at all. And he says, well, that's probably, I'm afraid, what you'll find like in that town. In other words, there's something about us that can lean in or lean out of being in community through shared relationships. And it's the responsibility of each of us, but also the privilege of each of us to make space for other people at our table and to build those relationships with one another. And the centerpiece of Christian community is the Lord's table. This is where, where we come to break bread together, this is where we encounter our shared salvation. We affirm every time we take the bread and the wine, we say, I will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just like he will and she will and they, they will. We affirm, I've received the Spirit just like they have. We are one people. We gather and affirm all of our beliefs and practices and we re-establish those shared relationships, not just with one another, but with the Lord himself. Though we are many, we proclaim, we are one body because we all share in one bread. We are one community because at this table, the grace of the Lord Jesus that saves you also saves me and that makes us one. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves all of us, that all who trust in you are rescued by your grace and given of your spirit. And we pray now that as we come to your table, or perhaps as we watch this at home, that we would be able to experience once again your refreshing, empowering grace, but also to live and express community with one another to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen.